Welcome back to Gray Matters from the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. In mid-November, President Biden signed H.R. 3684, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. It attracted attention mostly for the money that it would spend and the infrastructure projects that it might be spent on. Two experts on infrastructure highlighted something else. In late September, while the legislation was still being debated, the newspaper The Hill published an op-ed titled, The Most Important Part of the Infrastructure Bill is Little Noticed. Now, one of the authors was Jeffrey Rosen, the Gray Center's newest distinguished senior fellow, and the other was D.J. Gribben, previously general counsel for the U.S. Department of Transportation, more recently special assistant to President Trump for infrastructure at the White House's National Economic Council, and now founder of Madras LLC, a firm specializing in issues related to the development, design, and approval of new infrastructure. And he's our guest today. DJ, welcome to Gray Matters. Adam, thank you for having me. Well, let's just start with the headline that was on your op-ed. What was the most important part of the infrastructure bill, which went too little noticed? The most important part was the part of the bill that streamlined environmental permitting processes. As you know, any major project in the U.S., uh, before it can be built, has to go through uh, a NEPA process and then obtain a number of permits. That process, on average, takes four and a half years. And the complexity and the obscurity and the Byzantine nature of that process results in a significant economic drag because essentially every project is delayed by two, three, four, five years beyond what it should be uh, before that project can be put in place and delivering the benefits that project has to offer. Now, for the sake of our listeners, they might not know, but the first part of my own career as a lawyer was on infrastructure and especially on NEPA. And and even these years later, I still have, I think, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, from aspects of the NEPA process. Uh, But I'm so glad we can focus on the subject. We'll circle back to the specifics of the bill, some of the things that underlie it, like the the executive order on one federal decision. But why don't we take a, a very broad step back and just focus in general on the state of American infrastructure and the permitting process. I, it's talked about often. This issue has been very prominent in our politics for, I mean, actually throughout American history, but in recent years, you often see um, the report card of the Americans, what is the American Society of Civil Engineers? Is that, that right, DJ? Yes. Yeah, they always they always give American infrastructure something like a C minus, a D plus, and it's always worried about that. Then again, it's like asking my barber if I need a haircut; he'll probably tell me yes. Um, so, DJ, you as, as somebody who's an expert, but but you know maybe takes a, a broader view, how would you describe the state of, of American infrastructure today? Uh, and that's, that's that's a great question, and I like the way you juxtaposed the condition of infrastructure versus the condition of a permitting process. Uh, it's a bit of an urban myth that our infrastructure is crumbling. But it's absolutely true that our permitting process is a disaster. So kind of starting with the infrastructure, um, you know, could we invest more in infrastructure? Absolutely. Will some of this investment that recently passed be put to good use? Almost certainly. Um, but th- there is this rhetoric that was repeated over and over and over again that our infrastructure is crumbling. And that's, as someone who's traveled outside the United States, actually anyone who's traveled outside the United States knows that that's really not the case. Uh, there are parts of the world where infrastructure truly is crumbling. The infrastructure we have here in the United States is really pretty good, with one exception. Um, and that exception is inner city infrastructure, where cities have not maintained their water system, they haven't maintained their highways. And yes, those, those little pockets 
um, are deteriorating. It can be in pretty bad condition. But again, it's a city by city, locality by locality uh, type of condition, not something that you could cast nationally. I mean, I, during the pandemic, I drove from my home in Leesburg, Virginia to Nashville, Tennessee. I think I passed one pothole on the way, right? Our, our interstates are in phenomenally good condition for the most part. Um, but, you know, in order to get something passed, it's important to have a crisis. And the crisis was crumbling infrastructure. And I think the good news is there are, are places where, our, you know, the, the good news is the public recognizes the fact that we need investment in infrastructure. Um, what I worry about is throwing a lot of money at the problem. We can get to more details later, but just throwing money at the problem may or may not end up uh, in the, the outcome we're looking for. In fact, probably will not result in the outcome we're looking for. Um, but the reason, circling back to permitting, the, the, the reason why permitting, at least in my mind, is probably more important than the amount of dollars we throw at any point in time to the system is that, that permitting uh, that goes on too long and that's too complex and that's unneeded essentially is a tax on every major project we do in this country. And uh, one thing the, the, the advocates of this bill got right is Americans' competitiveness is directly tied to the quality of our infrastructure. And just get back to the permitting in just a moment, but just focusing a little bit more on, on infrastructure. When you said the, the part where we really do, things are kind of crumbling is in inner cities. That, that, that was interesting because I was trying to guess what you were going to suggest was the, 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 the holdout. And I, my own background being in energy infrastructure is slightly different than transportation infrastructure. But I tend to think when we see the, 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 the famous, really horrific stories, the bridge collapse in Minneapolis about a decade ago, and so on. And obviously those are salient examples. They're, they're not representative of infrastructure as a whole. And maybe that's why we, they make such news because they are so exceptional. But I often see complaints that are focused on rail and on airports uh, saying, you know, American airports aren't as nice as European airports. American rail isn't as nice as, as high-speed rail in Europe. And I've, for what it's worth, I've always wondered if that skews at least some quarters of American opinion, because I honestly don't know how American airports or rail really stacks up against the European experience or in Asia. But am I, I mean, I might just be totally wrong here and believe me, guests on the show tell me that all the time. But uh, is, is that entering into it at all? Does that have anything to do with, with rail and, and, and um, airports when we're talking about American infrastructure on decline? I think it depends on who your audience is, Adam. If you're talking about policymaking elites, yes. Airports and high-speed rail would be on the list. If you're talking about more of your average American, I think what they're thinking of is the potholes that they're riding over. I mean, they drive through parts of D.C. on the surface streets at some point. Um, yeah. you, you'd be better off with a four-wheel drive vehicle uh, with a relatively high clearance if you're going to do that. And similarly, as we see repeatedly every winter, water main breaks, things like that. So I think when you think about infrastructure from the average user standpoint, it's highway condition, it's highway congestion, it's water lines. And then it is things like, you know, blackouts, brownouts, get into the power side. Um, you know, could our airports be prettier? Yes. Do they function pretty well? Yes. Uh, we'll put New York City aside because New York City is just an embarrassment generally in terms of <laughs> their airports. But putting that aside, you know, other airports in the U.S. are are fine. Our travel is very cost effective. Um, so that's good. High speed rail. Our rail system is uh, not nowhere near where the rest of the world is. We can get into that conversation if you want to, but a large part is the way our country is designed is designed in a way that makes it hard for high-speed rail to make sense because we have populous centers that are very far from each other and we have really inexpensive air travel. 
we'll be in a couple of weeks, we'll be driving from Leesburg to Iowa. And so I just put new shocks on the minivan, but it turns out I don't need them. It'll be smooth uh, sailing on the, I think, on the interstate. I think once you, yeah, I think from, from Leesburg, you'll be fine as long as you're not going through any major urban areas. Uh, uh, well, if you're going through St. Louis or places like that, it could be a little tricky. Yeah. Just on infrastructure in general, and then we'll turn to permitting. As, as the, even just the discussion so far illustrates, infrastructure covers a lot of things that are regulated by a lot of entities. Highways, highways and streets, water lines, train tracks, pipelines, power lines, both the local power lines and the big interstate transmission lines that are increasingly important. And then things like broadband um, and, and the build out of, of Internet, they all get grouped together as infrastructure and the permitting frameworks have similarities and differences. But just to spring a very broad question on you, is it helpful or not to group all of these things together as infrastructure um, as, as we talk about the state of infrastructure in America? Or would it be better I'm sure it's always better to, in some ways, be specific. But do those things have more in difference from one another than in common? Um, so I'm, I'm going to answer your question two ways, one from a policy standpoint and one from a political standpoint. So from a policy standpoint, when I was working in the White House, uh, the president had announced in his campaign he was going to spend a trillion dollars in infrastructure. What happens in Washington when that announcement is made is everyone takes their pet project and slaps an infrastructure label on it, right? And so I had all these you know, cabinet members coming in, hey, national parks were infrastructure. Um, public housing was infrastructure. And, you know, we spent a good amount of time, I want to say like three months, on this very topic. What is infrastructure? And our goal really was to, to be clear and to line up what when we talked infrastructure, what did the American public think of as infrastructure? And so it was a relatively pure policy definition of infrastructure. Uh, this administration took just the opposite approach. Like literally everything became infrastructure. Um, and so from a political standpoint, they, you know, we did not pass legislation to get enacted in law. This administration has done that. So I would think politically it's actually quite potent to slap an infrastructure label on something because that's something the public is supportive of. I think the problem you're going to have is when the dust settles, we can talk a little bit this more later, but when the dust settles, a win is, is the American public happy with what's just happened? Have their expectations been met? And I can't imagine any scenario in which expectations have been set out for this bill are met because the White House has said this bill results in you know, every American having access to broadband, every child being able to drink water without going through a lead pipeline. And, and as you know, when, when, when policy meets reality, every and never don't really exist. There's always going to be somebody out there that's needs are not met. And so as someone who spent, you know, several decades trying to build public support for increased infrastructure spending, uh, along with a group of other people, and we've all been relatively successful, I'm now worried that we're going to lose all that support when infrastructure literally becomes everything. You know, it is funny to see the, the American people have such a nice sort of sense of the word infrastructure. It's such an, like a, it's such a weird, boring word. And we've had infrastructure that has had different names throughout American history, internal improvements, public works. And it's, it's interesting how those, those phrases and surely others, they're actually a little bit more descriptive and also sort of tell you what the point is. We're improving it. This is a public work. It's going to create jobs and so on. Infrastructure is just such a strange uh, word, but I digress. You mentioned um, the, the, the experience of the last administration. 
administration, the Trump administration there, you, as I mentioned at the outset, you, 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 um, or the National Economic Council, maybe before we move to the most recent legislation, it maybe just be most helpful to talk about your role on infrastructure in the last administration and how what it did, including one federal decision, sort of set the stage for the, the part of the legislation we're, we're talking about today. Yeah, no, I'd be glad to. So, so essentially, I was a special assistant to the president for infrastructure policy in the National Economic Council, as you mentioned. And then my job really was to be the point person in developing the administration's policy on infrastructure. So that's working with cabinet members, working with senior White House staff. We met with, I think, pretty much every governor in the country, hundreds of mayors, county executives, trade associations, just getting everyone's uh, thoughts and comments and pulling that together in a cohesive policy. Uh, The policy really had two main primary focuses. One was to incentivize increased investment at the local level. Uh, Adams, I think, as you know, three quarters of infrastructure investment is made at the state and local level, right? The, the federal government is a relatively small player. It's obviously a much bigger player now, but historically has been a relatively small player in infrastructure funding. And so what we wanted to do was to jumpstart that and create, you know, with race to the top, smart cities, that same type of dynamic where we're incentivizing state and local governments to invest more in what was their own infrastructure. And then the second leg was permit as we've touched on already. And, and I think our opinion was that was even more important because that had the opportunity to speed up not only investments in governmental infrastructure, but investments in private sector infrastructure as well. So, you know, about um, half of our country's uh, infrastructure, we touched on elect, you know, power infrastructure previously, about half our infrastructure is uh, uh, owned and maintained by the private sector. So it's important when you think about infrastructure, in this, this case, I would go for the broad definition, uh, that it's not just roads and highways, but it's, it's all core infrastructure, including telecommunications uh, and uh, electric distribution and generation, which are typically done by the private sector. So it was pulling that whole package together and then getting that package um, launched. And then interestingly, just sort of fighting back the thousand and one myths about what we had actually proposed. One of the most eye-opening experiences I had is we put out a relatively detailed, I think it was like, you know, uh, good long legislative outline, like a 52-page legislative outline of this is what we're thinking. And our critics pretty much never read it and totally ignored it and said, you just want to benefit Wall Street. And it was it was fascinating just to sort of be in the middle of that dynamic where you've actually issued something in writing and it's been completely ignored and people are talking about, you know, what they think it is you might have done. In discussing, um, and by the way, if people want to see the executive order that uh, came out of the Trump administration, it's, uh, and now I lost what the number was on it. It was executive order 13807, right? That was the one federal, the one federal decision order. As you described the, the sort of the outreach in the federal government, uh, the governors, local authorities, counties, other stakeholders, one of the most complicating factors, as far as I could tell, in, in infrastructure permitting and development is just the differences of opinions and the multiple veto points of different stakeholders in the process. Um, and so maybe just for, for listeners who are less familiar with it, I mean, it's got to be very challenging coming up with a framework that's streamlined and, and again, gives rise to one federal decision or at least a, a coherent, cohesive 
federal review process, um, but at the same time satisfying states and, and, and local governments who, even if they're for infrastructure and for infrastructure funding in general, might get uh, might be less um, less less in favor of a particular project in a particular place in their community. So, as you from the White House, how did you try to navigate that just truly timeless in American history um, tension between federal, state, and local government on on where to site and how to build infrastructure? Yeah, that's so. So on half of our policy, there was that tension and it was pretty extreme. On the other half, there was no tension at all. So on the half that there was tension was the spending side. Um, And interestingly, as I've talked to governors, to mayors, to county executives, they all agreed on one principle. And that is, if the federal government were to send money or infrastructure, it should go straight to them and not to these other jokers who are involved in their local politics, right? So just give me the money and then it will be fine. Uh, The other fascinating thing about the money was that several times it was declared in the media that the most important project in the country was the Gateway Project in New York City. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Adam, you will not be surprised to discover that outside of New York and New Jersey, no one else in America thought that was the most important project in the country. Well, assuming that most of our listeners are not in New York and New Jersey, can you just describe what the Gateway Project is? Yeah, so the Gateway Project is a $12 billion project to improve commuter rail between New Jersey and Manhattan. Um, it's probably the, the heaviest traveled rail corridor in the country. And uh, it is, I mean, it's an enormously important project, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you're living like we do in Virginia or even further away, like in California, it has no impact on your life at all. And so now that we've developed the, the interstate highway system, what you find is with a few exceptions, almost every project is a local project. Um, every highway project, every water project, transit project um, is really a local project. And so what, what we there was a lot of fighting around who should get the money. And the way we tried to resolve that was to say, listen, what we're going to do as a federal government is we will give you funds, wherever you are. If you raise money at the state local level, we'll match that. Um, That'll be our contribution. You, at the local level, figure out whether you want to spend that on broadband, whether you spend it on housing, whether you want to spend it on highways or water or airports or ports. Like whatever is most important to your community, you make that decision. We just want the pie to grow. So, so there was some controversy around that, but the way we structure, we we slightly minimize that. Um, where there was no controversy was environmental streamlining. Uh, there were two, Anne Arundel County, County Executive and the mayor of New York City were the only two people in like the thousand people I talked to who thought it was a good idea for the federal government to be more aggressive in terms of overseeing the Bermuda Project. Everyone else, like mayor of Los Angeles, mayor of Chicago, these are, you know, Democratic leaders were really frustrated with the fact that they can't meet their community needs because they can't get their projects permitted. And so you would think with all of the energy and the excitement around the, the issue of the environment, that that would be really contentious. As it turned out, no. Uh, everyone wants to protect the environment. They want to do sensible things. But they also, anyone who's been through this process will have to acknowledge that it's an insanely complicated, vastly unnecessary process. So we need a process. It needs to be a sensible process. And that's what we were working towards. That's fascinating. I, I mean, I have to admit, I don't want to dwell too long because I do want to talk about the legislation. But um, but when you see that many people who, again, disagree on so much um, come with such sort of unanimous support for permitting review, I have my my initial instinct is to wonder, well, did they agree or were they talking about different things? 
in the same language, right? Or maybe talking about different projects or talking about uh, different aspects of the permitting process, or maybe even just talking about the difference between, in theory, everybody is supporting this. But I mean, in any given case, there's always going to be an affected community. There's always going to be affected stakeholders of, of many kinds on an infrastructure project. And of course, that's so often what, what slows things down. But that, I'm going to make that just a rhetorical question um, because I want to talk well, about I want to answer that question, though. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, because here's the thing. In practice, we're talking about the federal permitting process. What the federal permitting process says is you, state and local government, are not going to do an adequate job of understanding the impact this local project has on your local constituency. So we, the federal government, are going to read you this long list of rules, some of which don't apply, some of which are nonsensical, but you're going to have to comply with all of these things because we deem that important for the public good. So I, I don't, I think what each of them were saying in their own way was, hey, I may be from rural Oklahoma and I have a short list, or I may be from Los Angeles and I have a long list, but, but you know, federal government, I can manage this. I can do an adequate analysis of this project's impact on my community the way that my community would like that done. I don't need you layering lots of complexity on top of that. So I think it was, it was more of an argument for federalism than it was for a wholesale change in the federal permitting process. That's fascinating. What brought the legislation, this aspect of legislation, my attention? It was a few, uh, a few weeks, a couple months actually, before your op-ed. I saw a press release from a group of senators, a bipartisan group of senators, really highlighting this part of the uh, infrastructure bill. And then after the bill was passed, I got the follow-up press release. It was from Senators Portman, Cinema, and Mansion. And I mean, regardless of the subject matter, when you see those three senators on the same thing, I mean, immediately you recognize, okay, this is really in the center of the Senate. Um, um, but uh, they they spotlighted this, and I know Senator Portman, uh, who's I guess been in the Senate the longest of those three. He's been involved in in infrastructure for so long, um, and he had in years earlier had been involved with a a, a law what's called Fast Forty One, the um, Federal Permitting Improvement Act. Um, part of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. Hard to keep track of all these names after a while. But from Fast 41 to today, Senator Portman and others on both parties have been prioritizing um, federal permitting review. So let's focus on the legislation, then this aspect of the legislation, circling back to it. Maybe just reiterate, what specifically is this going to change about the federal process? How does it build on Fast 41 and the executive order? And then maybe we'll move to, after that, we'll talk about next steps, about what ideally you'd like to see follow both in, in administration and in legislation to build on on the, this new permitting reform. So that's okay, a very so long-winded question. Yeah, with multiple parts. So, so let's, let's take that in, in, in chunks. So the, the first bit is Fast 41. So Fast 41 did something that was enormously helpful and beneficial, um, and it created the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, FIPSI. Um, the Obama administration didn't really have time to set that up. So we actually came in as the Trump administration, and one of the first things we did was establish FIPSI, and, and Senator Portman was quite helpful in doing that. So we set up the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, which essentially has is a representative from each agency that touches on permitting. So for those who are not familiar with how this process works, if the Department of Transportation, for example, is trying to build a highway, in order to permit that highway, it needs to have EPA's 
assessment of impacts on water, Army Corps of Engineers impact assessment on water, uh, the Department of Commerce's uh, uh, impacts on some wildlife, uh, Department of Interior, similar impact on wildlife and habitat. So there are a whole number of resource agencies that are involved in collectively analyzing the impact of any large project it's going to have on the environment. So that's a good, sensible thing. Um, the problem is, is oftentimes... As you find in government, as you find in business, as you find in your own family, people don't talk to each other always. And so they're not always cooperating. And when you have something that's this large, a little bit of non-cooperation can add years and years to the process. So the point of FIPSI was to get representatives from all these agencies together on a monthly basis to have a meeting to talk about the major projects in the country and where they were. The other thing that it did was quite helpful is created a dashboard so the public at any point could go up and see, is this process on schedule? Is it behind schedule? Where is it? Um, the challenge with the way that it was set up is that there were no teeth to the process. So if um, an agency, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick Fish and Wildlife, uh, decides that they're not happy with how things are going, they can drag this out. So one thing that most people don't understand about NEPA is that there is no leader uh, in terms of the process. It's a very collaborative effort with all of these agencies. Um, and there are no real set checklists of what has to be analyzed and what doesn't have to be analyzed. So there's, there's no clear end point of the analysis. And so what happens is you have a number of misalignments of incentives among the players, right? So the first one is that um, while there is a law, the, the practice of developing NEPA is a common law practice developed primarily by court um, decisions. And it's very, very subjective. So uh, I was working on a project with Chief Counsel of Federal Highways. We were doing a project in Ohio where the Fish and Wildlife representative decided that she didn't want the road located where it was designed. She wanted the road moved because the impact it would have on the Indiana path. Uh, it was then explained to her that the alignment of the highway is not her decision. That's a different government agency's decision, right? Her decision area was, what is this alignment's impact on the bat? And she said, I don't like the impact. I want it moved. So long story short, it took six months of going around, going around, going around, because she just kept delaying it. And there was no way to escalate naturally the, the issue, and there was no way to resolve it. So it just sort of stopped. So you multiply this around every project. But why was she doing that? Well, because she works at Fish and Wildlife because she wants to protect threatened and endangered species, not because she wants to build highways. Um, and a highway is never going to be good for a threatened and endangered species. So you have a person whose job is you know, to protect species, and they're in a decision process, which is unclear and unending. And, you know, she acted the way she was incentivized to act, which was to stop the highway. So what FIPSI does is it allowed for automatic escalation of those issues. So now top leadership of those agencies, if there's something's being paused, it can be brought to them. Uh, there's also a misalignment of incentives among the different agencies, um, similar to the individuals where, you know, their mission isn't to build a project. Their mission is to do something else. But now you've given them equal power. And there's also, to be honest with you, on the private sector side, a little bit of misalignment of incentives among consultants who put these reports together. Because um, I've often found that if you want to expedite something, don't hire people who are paid by the hour. <laughs> 
because there's not, no matter how good they are, there's sort of potentially a misalignment of incentives there. So you as, have as this, a lawyer, I take, I take great personal <laughs> offense to that, DJ. As a lawyer, people are hired usually to speed things up, right? <laughs> so they're how you protect them from things. So, um, but anyway, I'm not saying people don't always act purely, there are other incentives involved, but that's not the sole one. But we, I, my point is we have a very vague system. Um, it's, it's very complicated. It requires a lot of technical expertise and input, and it's being run by people who are highly risk adverse. And so it's very natural for, you know, all the winds are blowing towards delaying the project. And let's do one more level of analysis before we say yes. And so why, why do we need this background? Because what FIPSI did is it helped create an institution where you could break through that natural incentive to slow things down and just take a second, third, fourth look at these issues and say, no, no, guys, we're on a timeline. Public has seen our timeline. Let's make sure we stick to the timeline. Um, so what was the second question you had, Adam? It's a long answer to the first question, sorry. Well, we talked about Fast 41, and I said we'd, we'd turn to what's in the new legislation then. Okay, um, but, sort of, but before I go to the new legislation, um, yeah, of course. so based on Fast 41, so then what we found out was, you know, and, and you've worked on the, a lot of legal issues, right? So with the Constitution, you have laws, regulations, policies, and practice. Right. 95% activity at the practice level, right? Yeah. So right. very few decisions make it to the top of that pyramid. Almost all of it is just day-to-day, how do we operate? The problem with our permitting system, day-to-day, how we operate, is a disaster. So what we're trying to do is break that. And so we had an executive order and a memorandum of understanding amongst all the cabinet agencies. The White House basically said, listen, you have to play nice. If you don't play nice, we have to play nice. We're going to measure your performance. And if you're not playing nice, when you go to OMB and ask for next year's budget allocation, you have to explain to them why you weren't playing nice on this issue, right? So a little bit of accountability, a little bit of clarity around respective roles, a little bit of sort of management. We've got a leader here who you need to listen to and follow. They're the point agency on this project. All of that wiped out day one of the Biden administration. Um, I'm not sure it was intentional. My guess is they just searched Trump environment, delete all, <laughs> right? So, but but why does that matter? Well, because again, that practice here. So now we've got a statute, which is good. We can talk about a little bit, but all of the day-to-day interactions among these agency staff that are so important to whether these processes dry out or shortened, that's all gone, um, which is going to be really troublesome. I wrote a piece uh, for Brookings on this because the president wants to deploy an enormous amount of renewable energy uh, right. and the transmission that needs to go with it. I mean, I mean, and I'm talking about at the low end, it's like one and a half times the size of Delaware. At the high end, it's it's the landmass of South Dakota. Yeah. And if people are having trouble visualizing what that means, imagine all 41,000 miles of the U.S. interstate system times 125 uh-huh. is the low end, uh-huh. right? But it's that magnitude of landmass that needs to be utilized for renewables, and they've got a break, broken down, creaking system of permitting that they're going to try to get that through. Um, so my point was that, that the cost wasn't the threat to energy transition. It really was permitting is the number one threat to energy transition. So, so that's the, that's what we did. So we had the, we had the statute, which is incredibly helpful. We put in play with steering, the, the permitting council, which is very helpful. We put in place an executive order and a memorandum of understanding to try to 
mitigate and, and manage the behavior that natural people would, would fall into and also overcome uh, past biases and past practices. And that leads then to the statute that just passed, um, which took the branding one federal decision and codified it, which was good, took the concept of a two-year limit on EISs, which was good, took the concept of a page limit for EISs, which was good, um, but then kind of left it all up at the statutory level, which is two layers removed in terms of policy and practice from where it's going to be applied. And and you'll appreciate this, the lawyer, you'll appreciate this. Um, there's also, for example, I'm going to read from the statute just a bit. So projects shall be 200 pages or fewer. Next subsection, exemption. An environmental impact statement for a project may exceed 200 pages if the lead agency establishes a new page limit. Well, there you go. There, there is a 200-page limit with no teeth. So yeah. it has to be 200 pages unless someone says that they want a different number. You know, NEPA, an aspect of the way NEPA is implemented is certain classes of projects get categorical exemptions from NEPA review. And maybe now certain NEPA reviews will get categorical exemptions from the, from the new legislation. Um, but so just a practical question, DJ, about all this. And for what it's worth, when I, again, a long time ago, when I started off on this in energy infrastructure, the Energy Policy Act of 2005 had created very similar things for um, interstate um, um, trans- power transmission lines, for LNG terminals, for pipelines, more coordinated review on, say, the Natural Gas Act permits and the Clean Water Act permits and, and the NEPA review and all this. And it was it was all very interesting and it did help a lot. And also there was some streamlined judicial review. But at the end of the day, there's just this basic fundamental question. The federal, the, 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 the project, let's say for, for private projects, but also for government projects, they need to get approval from certain permitting authorities. They need to affirmatively get that approval from the authorities. And so long as they need that approval, every incentive is going to be in favor of, of allowing the agency to have extra time, right? Um, allowing the agency to sort of push the boundaries of any kind of, or sort of bristle at any kind of restraints. And frankly, if the project is bumping up against deadlines, the permitting authority almost always has the right to say, well, we have to deny the permit because we don't have enough information. I think this happened with Keystone, actually. Congress put a deadline on President Obama for Keystone. And as the deadline neared, he said, well, I'm going to have to deny the permit unless we get an extension of the of the timeline. I might be misremembering that. Um, so I guess my question is, what real teeth can force agencies to do a good job, and we do want them to do a good job of the review, but within um, limits, knowing that they could just say no to the project. The alternative would, another one of my compound questions, but the alternative would be set a deadline on the agency and say, well, if you don't complete the review within two years, five years, then the applicant gets the permit. But that sets a lot of incentives in the wrong direction and puts the incentive upon the, 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 the project to delay, to stonewall. So I guess the real question is, how can you really set incentives that will work and work for everybody? Um, yeah, that, that is the... So you, you're asking a question of how can we create a policy that will work and work for everyone, <laughs> which I'm not sure in the role of policy there is such a thing. <laughs> but Sorry I'll, I'll about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would start by saying a no is a good answer, right? A quick no is totally legitimate. So I've got a project, it's going to plow through tons of wetlands, take out some endangered species, and disrupt the burial site. No, like you, you can't do that. Go back to the drawing board to start over again. 
What's so painful about this process is we don't get to quick no's and we don't get to quick yeses. And so I think part of what, you know, the, the, if you think about it from a statutory level, the number one thing you could do is eliminate any duplication in terms of responsibility. So right now, EPA and the Corps of Engineers both have to opine on water issues. Right? Let, let's stop that, right? Commerce and uh, interior both have to opine on species issues. Like, let's stop that. Let's give one person a responsibility. It's a big government. We've got lots of smart people. Um, let's let's just make clear delineation, like you would in any management exercise. Who's responsible for what? Second, let's have a leader, right? So in Australia, um, the lead agency used to be able to, and I think this is the law, but when I was talking about a decade ago, the lead agency gave a department, you know, 90 days to give them a, an analysis. And if they didn't get it done, then they just moved on, right? Okay, you know, you lost your window. Now, to your point, we looked at that in the White House. Is should we have certain permits just deemed approved a cert- after a certain time period? Well, you know, that does incentivize the developer then just to not provide information and don't do anything and drag it out because I know, hey, this may be, I may be destroying all this wildlife, but if I just hang out long enough, I could do that. So you, you don't want to go that far. Um, so I think, you know, clear de- delineation of responsibility, clear leadership, and then, you know, have a system like we have with FIPSI with some real teeth in it where you're incentivizing people to partner and doing things that maybe they feel a little uncomfortable with because they prefer there be no project, but that's not their decision. Their decision is what is the impact of this project and what are the impact potentially of alternatives to that project. So I think if you did those things and we did some of them, we couldn't, we proposed some statutory changes, but that's really, really hard. Um, but there is quite a bit that can be done at the practice level to move this along. And, you know, the page limit's got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and pushback. But the number one question I got when I was Chief Counsel Federal Highways is, when can I stop? Like, how far does this analysis have to go? Is this, you know, do I need to just understand it generally? Or, are, you know, is this a Six Sigma analysis I have to do? Or can I get to the hundreds part and then sort of generally know what's going on? And what you're seeing in these environmental documents is a drive towards more and more data, the vast majority of which is useless at the end of the day. Vast majority is useless. So with a page limit on environmental reviews, I'm envisioning a future where environmental reviews are all written in like eight point font with half inch, half inch. No margins. Just what you've described in that last moment there, it sort of points out how much broader the issue is from sort of comprehensive reform would require going back and rethinking and reworking the statutes passed over 100, 200 years. I mean, when I was doing natural gas pipelines, we were talking about the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1899. These yeah. are old statutes and new statutes that would that the vest authority and responsibility in agencies, and that would need to be reworked. You probably need to you need to focus on appropriations and make sure that agencies are funded sufficiently to actually, and maybe they already are, but if they're not, fund them sufficiently to carry out these tasks. And on the NEPA report side of things, surely the agencies are sort of de- defensively elaborate in their environmental impact statements, just because the courts, as you mentioned earlier, the case law is so vague and ambivalent. Um, it ebbs and it flows in what it's obligating agencies to do. It's become even more complicated in the era of climate policy, where climate is, where it has become an issue in EISs. So I suppose reform would require also giving the courts clear instructions and clearer limits 
on what EISs actually need to contain and where you draw a line between the things that are likely or of such significant magnitude that the agency has to consider them and the things that are so far-fetched, um, the dangers that are so minimal or far-fetched that at some point the candle is, 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 isn't worth the fight. But I guess that's what yeah. comprehensive reform would entail. Absolutely. And, and, and the good news is you don't need a statute to do that. So I have worked on like a practitioner's guide at CEQ. There were things like, when is data stale? Right. I was working on a project where we were concerned that data was four or five years old. That would be too old as air quality data. So we would not regather data. By that time, the, there's a new version of the model that was out. So we had to throw it away and get a new model and run the new model. And I'm not making this up, Adam. By the time that was all done, we were worried, is the data stale again? Um, and this is all driven by the lack of understanding of what a court's going to decide. So CEQ said, in essence, hey, five-year five year data and younger, that's fine. That's not stale. Then, as a project proponent, I can go into court with my short EIS and say, yes, we use four-year-old data, but it's okay because that meets CEQ standard. And as long, you know, what is a reasonable alternative? We can go round and round and round about that. Um, so as, as long as, and that's what the, the revision to the NEPA regulation was designed to do, was, was create some guardrails around the analysis and basically say, as long as you're between these guardrails, you're doing decent analysis, you don't need to go to the Six Sigma uh, to get appropriate level of analysis. And that's, that's unbelievably important. And just that change in of itself would be incredibly impactful. As DJ knows, again, these are subjects that have fascinated me, and they go back way into American history, from Alexander Hamilton's initial report on internal improvements, what the Whigs tried to do in the mid-19th century into the Roosevelt administration, and today. These are just fundamental constitutional issues. I mean, in fact, the, the meetings that gave rise the meetings that preceded the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, they were at Annapolis, if I remember correctly. And the meetings before that were at Mount Vernon. And so much of those meetings, those early meetings, were focused on just improving the Potomac River and finding ways to, they didn't call it infrastructure, obviously, but just yeah. build up the nation's capacity for trade, commerce, movement, and so on. So this is a, these are timeless constitutional themes in, in the most fundamental sense. But DJ, maybe the last question, and it's a, consti- a qu- kind of a constitutional issue for today. One of the things that worries me thinking about this is a matter of constitutional administration, the role of the executive branch, and just the steadiness of government that the framers had hoped for. They were very worried, and the, the Hamilton others were very worried about what they called mutable administration, one administration to the next, everything changing, almost just for the sake of changing it. Um, each new administration, I mean, they didn't have Etch-a-Sketches back there, but each administration treating sort of what was done before like an Etch-a-Sketch that you'd shake up and start anew. And I worry that we're seeing that more and more today with permits. We're seeing more and more permits that are granted by one administration, reopened by another. And I mean, there are, the Biden administration, the most recent in office, um, there are lots of salient examples. Examples, whether it was Keystone, I think just days before we recorded this, I saw news of a major water pipeline in the Southwest having its permits reopened. Um, there's just no certainty around too many permits. Now, as with everything, you don't want too much certainty, right? You want to, you do want the government to go back and correct mistakes, you know, recognize its own errors. But I don't know. I worry that today one of the biggest problems we have in administration is the fact that permits themselves seem too unsteady to really support the kind of investment and long-term planning that's needed to make the projects actually happen. So on this question of permits being reopened or revoked, uh, why don't you send me out on a happy note and tell me why none of this is a, is a cause for concern? Can't do that. It's a huge cause Sorry. for concern. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, the Obama administration revoked Keystone's permits. We, like, essentially went in and said, hey, regardless of what you're doing, you get your permits. And the Obama the Biden administration came in and yanked the permits. That politicization of infrastructure is, is really does not bode well for the future of this country. I mean, again, to come full circle to where we started. Why does the public love infrastructure? Why were we able in an incredibly contentious period to pass a bipartisan bill on infrastructure as the public supports the improvement of America's infrastructure? They don't want this, you know, is it an R or D project? There used to be sort of part of the campaign stump speeches. There's no such thing as Republican bridge or Democratic bridge. Um, I'm worried that that may be changing a little bit. Now, we're talking about pipelines and more controversial, you know, mining or controversial areas on the, on the uh, infrastructure spectrum. But sure. I, I agree with you that it's, it's worrisome that we're politicizing something that is a pipeline um, and that, you know, project developers are going to have to then, before they invest in a project in the U.S., ask themselves, is this the type of project that's going to be hot and cold, depending on who's in the Oval Office? Yeah. And as you mentioned, the, the Biden administration with, with great ambitions for next generation infrastructure on, on, on how we power our nation, they're going to have very, very similar challenges and concerns. And maybe this experience over time for both parties will, will, will bring us towards consensus. Um, but, but I mean, I can see a future where an incoming Republican administration cancels all the wind solar permits. I mean, in other words, we, we, we do need, I think, as a country to kind of come back to the center to that uh, Portman Mansion Cinema Center and say, hey, listen, the federal government's role in terms of permitting projects is somewhat limited. These are decisions that really ought to be made at the state and local level. And uh, let's let it play out there. Because when you federalize issues, you make them very contentious. There is virtually no disagreement uh, amongst the governors, the mayors, the county executives I talked to in terms of what was important and how they like the system run. All that partisanship comes when you move the question to Washington, D.C. So every question we can take out of D.C. and move it locally um, becomes less partisan. Interesting. One, one last thing before we go. I mentioned that your your firm is called Madras LLC. Uh, that's not it's not a family name. I can't. It's the, what's the what's the name mean? So Madras is Arabic for thoughtful. And what I was looking for is a name that was short, pronounceable, meant thoughtful. I'm big on thoughtful. Uh, and that when you Googled it, you didn't get anything that's untoward. So huh. that, well. Madras checked all those boxes. Well, it certainly does. And I hope that for our listeners, uh, that the pod, our conversation today itself was thoughtful. So again, my guest for today's episode is DJ Gribben, expert on infrastructure, founding partner of Madras LLC. DJ, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure being here, Adam. Great. And thanks as always to our listeners for, for tuning in. Please be sure to join in for the next episode of Gray Matters. <laughs>